everybody. So welcome back to the Airspace Executive Podcast. I am I'm really happy to have Anne Rhodes with me today. Anne has got nothing short of an amazing background. She is the president of a company called PeopleLink. PeopleLink uh, is a company that builds values-based organizations. It's all about culture, brand, and bringing the right people into the organization. She is the former vice president of people at Southwest Airlines, was the former vice president of people at JetBlue Airlines, and uh, was on the board of directors for that airline as well. Also on the board of directors of P.F. Chang's. Am I correct with that too, Ann? Uh, we sold P.F. Chang's, so no. Uh, the whole board went off a few years ago. All right. So nice little feather in your cap. But uh, So thanks for being here. Great to be here. Love the topic. You've built some pretty strong you've built some pretty strong companies and some strong brands. You know, I I've been so blessed and I always tell everyone that very few people are this lucky. I not only got to participate in helping build these brands, but I also got to live inside and get to know the people. It's all about people, right? And get to learn how from Southwest actually you build a great culture because I still believe they are a great example and will go down in history as being one of the best examples of building a strong culture over 50 plus years. Incredible, right? 50 some thousand people. You still see them smiling every time you walk by one of them. They're all smiling. Well, it was the airline that was built on, yeah, like yeah, I remember my, my father when I lived in, you know, we lived in Houston. My dad was every day on Southwest Airlines to the point where he came home with a bottle of Jack Daniels when you guys were giving away <laughs> a bottle of Jack Daniels to the Premier Flyers, right? <laughs> Half a um, gallon. You got to pick the your choice when you got off the plane till man got a hold of herb. <laughs> and, and nobody else was doing, but nobody else was doing that. Yeah, you're the airline love, you know, the ticker symbol love. A lot going on to that brand. Was that where was that where you you know, you, you and Herb Keller, or is that where you kind of came on to this? Hey, there's something about the people yes. brand and Herb was on the board of a bank that I was a senior VP of the people side, and we were going through a tough time during the late '80s. And so Herb was on the board, and from there he asked me to come be his first head of people, and we called it people because we hated inhuman resources and we couldn't spell personnel. So he said, let's just call it people. And he honestly taught me how, and he was an intuitive leader, but he taught me that there are five very important pieces of building a strong culture. And culture, by definition to me, is the collection of behaviors of an organization. And to Herb, it was, uh, he always gave this definition of culture. He said, it's what people do when no one's looking. Um, and you see that on Southwest aircraft every time you fly, right? They're happy and having a good time and yet doing a very good job. And JetBlue was built, you know, three of the five of us who, who started JetBlue with with David Nealman actually came out of Southwest. So we've used that brand as the anchor for much of what we did. And we literally began by defining the values and the behaviors we wanted to see because we knew New York customers would probably be just a little picky about who they flew. <laughs> so we started by defining the values and behaviors and then hired to those. And that's what started JetBlue, I think, the right way. I uh, So when I was in college, few people know this, when I was in college, I used to work for Delta Airlines during the summers. And they put me at the gate at Newark Airport. <laughs> and I lasted three days. <laughs> <laughs> I said, oh my can gosh. I, I said, can I, I'll just go load bags. You cool with that? And they're like, yep, <laughs> we're good. So that must've been a pretty, I mean, that's, a, yeah, but, but ultimately you took the Southwest model people, David Nealman, obviously. Yeah. How did you define, you know, you're talking about building a culture. 
How do you define the people that you want to bring on, what that culture is going to look like? And how do you do it from the very start versus trying to wing it? When we first got together in New York, David and Dave Barger, who at that time was the president, became the CEO later. We sat in a room in downtown, in the Roosevelt Hotel downtown. And I'm sorry, at the Doubletree that time, at the Doubletree Hotel in downtown New York at Times Square. And we sat in a room and said, let's describe how we want to be described by the Wall Street Journal five years from now by our customers. And so we talked about the behaviors that customer customers would most likely be attracted to. And then we went back and defined the values and the behaviors that would get us there. And then, of course, we built a very strong hiring model, which was very difficult because we were at a 3% unemployment in New York at the time we started JetBlue in 99. Um, we actually got together in 98 and 99. We described who we wanted to be. And then we set about trying to recruit and hire those people that would deliver on that brand. So we called how, it the brand experience. How did you uh, build the model? I mean, what, what goes in when you talk about building the model? You know, what, what did you use some tools? Did you, you know, were there some tools, Hogan assessments in there? Were there, you know, what was, what was the, the foundation? Tools we that? used were tools that we had had at Southwest. My team was largely from Southwest that came with me and helped me build it. And they came and we said, what is it? Let's describe, first of all, what we want. And then let's go back and build tools for developing those behaviors. And hiring models were the most critical part. But I have to tell you, if you start an airline or you start any organization and you don't look at who you hire as that base, you're going to end up with a problem later on. Because honestly, that base was critical. It was so critical that it took us over 20 people to hire one person. And that we built a hiring model around the values. So, in, for example, integrity, safety, passion, fun, and caring were the values. And mm-hmm. so one of the questions we asked people, it's based on behavioral hiring, which was used in the military in World War II. When some of the pilots were not hitting their target in World War II, the government went, Air Force went in to see what commonality they had on those that were hitting their targets versus those that weren't. And what they found out was a commonality is, was, what do you think? What does a pilot do um, in terms of safety every single time they take off today? Checklists. Checklists yeah. was the commonality. So what they found out was the common trait for great pilots was they always completed a checklist. And today, of course, we use it. We even use it in hospitals, right, in healthcare mm-hmm. and the operating rooms. But they went back and found out that they should only hire pilots that complete a checklist. It's a small example, but today it's called behavioral hiring, and we hire for the right behaviors because 90-some percent of the time, those people will behave that way consistently over and over again. So if you Mm -hmm. define the organization around the brand and the behaviors you want to see each day, every customer, internal and external, and you hire to that model, your outcomes will obviously be much better than they will if you don't have any hiring model. And that plays into the big things now that the FAA is big on CRM, crew resource management. That's right. And safety management systems. So that's right. Checklists and the culture. Well, we, we, we develop a safety, a quote unquote, safety culture with, you know, integrity. And safety was the value, of course, that um, we came up with first, because obviously that is critical to any successful airline any airline period. But I really think that by doing that, we also hired people that, really understood that safety it can never be compromised. So one of our first hires, it was hard to find technicians 
because we were flying Airbuses and it's a more sophisticated aircraft. First of all, the unemployment rate, as I said, was just 3%. So we had a difficult time. The other point was David Nealman had sold Morris and pilots and some of the technicians were concerned, the applicants, that this would be a short-term deal and that David would not hold it a long-term and they wouldn't get to have a career there. So they weren't really excited about applying, right? Mm-hmm. They love tenure because um, that's the basis <laughs> for pilots and technicians and others. But anyhow, he what we did was we started talking about the values and safety and we asked a question of everyone we interviewed. Give us an example of a time when by telling the truth, you thought you could lose your job. One of the very first technicians we interviewed who came out first in his class, um, A&P class, told us about a story. He was working for a New York airline and it had been two years. He had been unemployed for two years because he refused to sign off on an unsafe aircraft, in his opinion. And he was fired and he was not rehirable by any other airline. And the last time I checked at JetBlue, he's a manager today. And I will tell you, we couldn't wait to hire him because honestly, we knew that he would never sign off on an unsafe aircraft. That's the type of behavior that you describe. And that was a behavior not only about, I mean, it was a savior, a safety behavior, but it also is high integrity. And those were two of our values. And we immediately hired him. And yet he told us no one else would hire him. Interesting. When you hire for those behaviors, and Southwest has done it for years. Mm -hmm. If you look at Southwest and you see people that have that sense of humor, that's by design. That didn't just happen. When you hire, when you're interviewed at Southwest, you have to give an example of using your sense of humor in a difficult situation. That's by design. That's called behavioral hiring, but it only works if you've described the behaviors you want to see consistent throughout the organization. And again, it's about 90% predictive. That's why you will see Southwest. I believe Delta has to use it. Delta has a great, to me, culture. I've been flying them a lot and their people love being on Delta. Very interesting. I think Anderson, when he came in, probably made a real difference. It's about leadership too. Can't ever forget that because that's critical. Mm-hmm. And I think he made a difference by letting people know he cared. And I think I would guess, I do not know, I haven't validated this or collected the data, but I would bet they hire for behaviors and they hire for the right behaviors given their brand. I'm sure that's the case. You know, one of the things that's interesting though is, you know, and, and, and that's not an easy process. You know, it's it's expensive to hire that way. It's incredibly time consuming. You're probably interviewing now, you're bringing... Whereas many airlines are bringing in 10 people, five, 10 people for a role, you're probably doubling or, or more for that. Herb did not make us or override us when we did not hire his son. David Nealman did not override us when we didn't hire his brother. You see, you have to be consistent. You can't make exceptions on the behaviors because it will impact everyone. When you see and you feel the culture walking through Southwest and JetBlue, it's a feeling you get that everyone is similar. They're laughing, they're smiling, and you can tell a bad hire there almost immediately. We had a tech who had all the tech requirements, and we were having some issues in in technology, IT, when, when I was there. So we hired someone who had all the credentials, but the minute he got there, We could tell if you put him in a group, never smiling, never happy, came to see me one day and said it was too happy a place. He didn't like it. (laughs) 
So, of course, we wrote his resume and introduced him to another airline in Dallas. I won't tell you who, but it was really interesting because people will self-eject. They won't feel comfortable. No, they will. Absolutely. I mean, that's, you know, they just self-select out and that's yeah, okay. Which is great. I heard a story recently of somebody who left a company and they were happy to you know, happy to see him go. A couple minor mistakes coupled with a bad attitude. Yeah. Change, you know, a couple couple mistakes, no big deal. But the couple mistakes with a bad attitude, it's like, hey, let's go do, let's go, let's go do a different direction. And what's so consistent is other people notice it right away, and even people inside will encourage them to go somewhere else. We've heard that just walking through the halls. That isn't how we do it here at JetBlue, or or Southwest. It's very interesting. The two are very similar in terms of who they hire. Um, and also, I think if you watch in the airport, people that are happy, you'll consistently see those brands smiling as they walk through the airport. I watch it all the time. I'm just a people watcher, right? And so I watch that all the time. And then I ask other people to do it. And they always come back to me and say, you're right. Going back to the Herb Kelleher model. And then you think about uh, Frank Lorenzo back in the day, <laughs> culture kill, culture killer and you know, a lot of employee animosity, which ultimately came into the downfall. I mean, Herb, Herb was a pretty happy. <laughs> I, well, let me rephrase that. People Very would happy. think he was a pretty happy-go-lucky person, but my sense is that he was probably underneath the happy-go-lucky. There was an intense. There was an intense focus on doing the right things. He had to be in his leadership meetings um, to know that he was not only what his brilliance was not just strategically; it was tactically. I mean, he knew exactly what we should be doing and when we should be doing it. He, one time, very interesting story, we could not get the flight attendant contract signed. It was just taking too long, and he didn't like to take too long to have any work group not happy, right? So he said, you need to do a shower at your house for the leader of the flight attendant union. She's having a child, and you need to do the shower. So I organized a shower. We did the shower, and he showed up in a pink chenille robe with Velcro rollers in his hair and a half gallon of wild turkey. And he's at the door at noon at my home, and he comes in. He walks around. He talks to all the flight attendants, and we had the contract signed the next week because he knew how to talk to people. They believed him. They trusted him. Trust sounds like a small word. It's five letters. It means everything when it comes to leaders and the people that follow them. And you build it over years. You can lose it very quickly, though. How did that culture go? You know, let's just talk from a cultural standpoint. A very engineering, quality-driven culture to one that is now looking over its shoulder, wondering where the next shoe drops or hoping the next shoe doesn't drop. And every customer in the world is looking at it going, how did you all get here? And how did that happen? How does that happen? I'm not inside, but I would tell you that there's a lack of trust in the leaders, um, and probably they didn't. You know, when you look at the airlines that are no, that no longer exist, the Pan Ams, the Eastern, the old airlines, one of the things that was consistent is the lack of conversation and communication between the leaders and the people on the line. I mean, it was consistent. The leaders wouldn't talk to the pilots. They wouldn't talk to, in many cases, they said that, 
You just couldn't get them to communicate. So they didn't always know what was going on. They thought they knew what was going on. I don't know if that's the case in Seattle. Mm -hmm. I would guess, though, that somewhere that that line of communication has not been really as consistent and as honest as it could be, because some of these issues should have been found out before, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. I just think, you know, Herb met with the pilots. He always met. Um, consistently with them. He asked them what was working, what wasn't working, what could we do? Every single officer, and there were 12 of us at the time, we had to spend one day, a quarter in the field. You had to come back and tell them two things. One, what did the customer say um, was an issue with them or what are we doing right or wrong? And you had to come back and tell them what the employee said too. And he would take that to heart and he and Colleen would look at it and see where they had to make changes. Every single letter that was sent to him, he responded and customized the response. It wasn't a blanket letter that you got back. He looked at what was going wrong so that he could fix it. He and, and his team could fix it before it became um, so huge that, you know, it wasn't as fixable. I don't know what's happened there. I don't know what the breakdown has been, but somehow there must be a breakdown in communication and trust. Somehow. I don't know. Part of that, do you think, a board of directors issue? I have served on numerous boards, over 20, actually, some private, some public, some and some not-for-profit. There was one thing consistent in those boards is you had to have people that cared about the brand. It mm -hmm. wasn't about sitting on a board and not, not participating. What I don't like on boards that I sit on, I participate. I do not think you should sit there and wait for your quarterly check. You need to be very active in making sure you know what's going on. So at P.F. Chang's, I went and worked in the kitchen. I I mean, when I've sat on boards, I will go sit in the one of the brand, like P.F. Chang's or Restoration Hardware. I went to the stores. I talked to the people. I, I just think at JetBlue, I still do that. Mm -hmm. I will still in an airport, if I see a technician, I'll go ask him, how is it going? What's what's working? What's you know, how are those values being lived? I just, you know, and I'm hoping that it's a great brand. And mm -hmm. I'm hoping that people recover because recovery is everything. We all make mistakes um, and hopefully recovery will occur for them like it has for others. It is a great brand. I'm sorry that when things happen to any great brand. Sometimes, yeah. Look, sometimes, you know, the you get the bear. Sometimes the bear gets you, right? Mm -hmm. And and mm -hmm. yeah, like Southwest, you know, just yeah, you know, they had their their yeah. Look, I think it's you know, I think it's a phenomenal brand. I enjoy flying it. I'm probably happy I wasn't on it, you know, last winter <laughs> when they had their when they had their meltdowns. But perfect storm came, and I think they're learning where to invest. You know, the the management down there is learning where to where to invest their money moving forward, right? And you know what? I never questioned that they would recover and recover well. The technology was probably more obsolete than it certainly is at JetBlue. David made sure that we were a very high-tech company and we used technology. But Southwest has never been known for their technology or they could assign seats, right? There you go. Well, there you go. <laughs> the great thing about Southwest is they will recover and they'll probably do just fine. Nope. They have some great leaders and over the years, they made mistakes like all of us, but they did recover. JetBlue, right after we started flying February 14th, um, we sat in the runway for an incredible time, that incredibly long time, that I'm trying to remember, was it 10 hours? I mean, it was a long time. It was like 10 hours long. So the next day, Barger and 
Nealman called every single one. It was over 162 passengers and called them and apologized. A, people could not believe that the CEO and the president were calling to say they were sorry personally. Mm -hmm. Many of them thought they were faking. They weren't the CEO and the president. Seven asked for jobs and (laughs) over 80% flew us in the next six months. There you go. Look, admitting there's a mistake is half the battle. Apologize. I don't care what job you're in. Always just say, I'm so sorry I screwed up. Just that simple. Let's fix it. That's a hard lesson to learn for a lot of people. It's um, really hard, especially when you're a caring organization like Southwest. I'm sure that internally it it really threw them because they really, really hurt when when other people and customers are so unhappy. And the people who really take the brunt of it are the customer service agents who are in that airport and the flight attendants who are on the flight that's late. Or they're the ones, the frontline players are the ones who take the brunt of it. And that's a part I really hate. So I flew a, uh, you know, last summer, I flew American over to Chicago with my family, go visit some people. Things you can't control are the weather. Big thunderstorms on the airfield. Yeah. What do they do at O'Hare when there's thunderstorms? They stop all traffic. It's a ground hold. Well, we had a ground hold for two hours. The flight attendants were fantastic. And I'm Lucky enough that the vice president of flight operations at Republic Airlines is in my, you know, my iPhone. I'm texting him and just saying, hey, pass this along. Your flight, your, your pilots and crew have done an amazing job in a frustrating situation. I absolutely love the accolades that come in and people should do that more frequently because we need to thank those people that are taking the brunt of it. We always think it's as passengers. We think it's us. It's not us. They have hundreds of people to placate. So I really do the same thing, write notes and thank people um, and give them accolades. It really is important. It goes a long way, but, but Hey, let, I'm going to shift gears a little bit. And then we're going to talk, you told me about a funny story and, and, and it, it really worked out well, but yeah, you had to, uh, you had to terminate your, your future boss. Yes. <laughs> David swears I terminated him twice and he will never ask me to go anywhere ever again. So you're the person who got to fire David Nealman twice and you're still good friends. And <laughs> so, you know, so the great question becomes at what point a change needs to be made and you did it the right way. Well, Kelleher was a kick. He would tell me, he said, you know, he came after we bought Morris and David had been there a while and David is a huge techie and he does things right. He came up with the e-ticket. You know, he's a brilliant guy, has always used technology, probably on the forefront before any airline had really been using it. Certainly came up with e-ticket first. So he brought it to Southwest when we bought Morris. And so what was interesting is he was telling us our technology was not in the right place, right time. We needed to really update. We needed to assign seats, everything he had done at Morris. And he told us that everything we were doing was wrong. Well, we were in our heydays, right? We were doing well. We didn't think David needed to come tell us that everything we were doing um, was wrong. And he did. So Herb comes to see me because everybody was frustrated after a few months and said, we got to let Neilman go. I'm going to take him to dinner at Ruth Chris. I'm going to tell him that he's a great guy, but we probably need to move on. So David comes to see me the next day and he said, I think he said that was a great dinner. I said, it was. Well, I'm glad that y'all had a great dinner. He said, yeah. Herb told me I could maybe be the next president of this airline. I said, what? He said, he told me I could be the next president. Of the airline. I said, David, that wasn't supposed to be the message. <laughs> so we kidded. We laughed. And 
Herb finally talked to David, but I I did tell him that that wasn't the message and we needed to move on. And David did really well, went up and built WestJet and later on came to see me. I think it was almost the day after his five-year non-compete. And we met in Atlanta and he said, you need to come help me build JetBlue. And I said, you remember last time we met? (laughs) Anyhow, we had a great time. And then at JetBlue, just like David, the brilliant entrepreneur, he also starts running operations and the board decided we needed a change. And and so I was on the board. So he claims it was my fault. Of course. (laughs) Anyhow, David's a great guy. I mean, he only went on to build two more successful airlines. I mean, what does somebody want, right? Very, very successful. He's a brilliant business guy, a brilliant entrepreneur. Really, I think the combination that made JetBlue successful was a combination of Neilman and Barger. Barger was the operator. But on the flip side, too, you know, and I talk to folks about this. It's like, hey, look, so you got fired. Yeah. Okay. Big deal. It's not a, it's not a, it's not a scarlet letter. Just move on from it, but do so, you know, but do so in a positive way. Taking care of them on the way out. So Mm -hmm. it was a handshake. It was a party. It's always a positive. It's not a negative and letting people know that you care. But honestly, I would rather be in an organization and be out if it's not time. I've left boards because I thought it was time for people to come in. That's what you need to do. I mean, it's not, I don't know how many human beings are around that have worked for a period, have worked for a couple decades that haven't had a bad experience or been fired, or at least (laughs) I was fired from one of my first jobs in a drugstore. So uh, I spilled a green green freeze over the CEO who was with his banker and I managed to spill a green freeze from his head to his toes. So that was not a good experience. I mean, that's the thing I want to talk to these young, these young kids. There was a TikTok video about a girl getting fired from, software company and she did the big, yeah, why am I getting fired? I'm like, look, at the end of the day, you're pushing on a rope. You're arguing uh, a point. You're not going to get to keep your job. Best way to move on and move on with your life and go a different direction. But, you know, the flip side with the company too is, hey, look, if you're going to, you know, obviously people get hired and people get fired doing a manner that allows them to keep their, their dignity and respect. It's very rare that it isn't good for both of them, (laughs) unless there's some financial issue. I mean, in terms of illegal operation or something, someone steals from me. But I've honestly, um, I always tell the story that I literally always had resumes. So if I thought someone wasn't right, but I couldn't get rid of them because the CEO wouldn't let me, I would send their resume around and they would get calls. And we did get rid of them somehow. You can, I honestly don't think it's good for the person to keep them, nor is it good for the organization. And there's very, there are very rare times when after you've had to let someone go, you didn't say to yourself, I should have done it earlier. Yeah, no, I agree with that. A hundred percent. I think 80% of the time, like you said, unless there's an integrity issue or something and most people come back and say, Ooh, that was probably a pretty positive, you know, it, it hurt a little bit, but it was pretty, it was a positive it was well, a look at David. Moment. He did JetBlue, and then he did Azul, and now he's doing Breeze. I mean, and he has fun doing that. I mean, that's his baby, starting and building. It'll be fun to see where Breeze goes. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm interested in watching Breeze yeah. grow further. So, talk about what you're doing with um with PeopleLink now. You've you've got a great you know, you're you're out there building companies and organizations. You know, do you find that a lot of them have a hard time building that culture and defining it? You know, we all have cultures, whether we pay attention to it or not, it develops, right? They watch the behaviors of the leader. So they 
then emulate those with good, bad, or indifferent. But when you do it systematically and you do it by intention, you get to build a culture that really reflects the brand you want to build. So we believe that you define the values. You can call them principles. You can call them anything you want. But five or six of those signature items like integrity, which is very common, of course, or trust or honesty, whatever you want to call it, safety in the airlines, and you define it. But the most important part are not the words on the wall. The most important part are the behaviors behind each of those. So you define those behaviors because literally that is the collection that will define the culture. How people behave and and how they treat each other inside an organization is the culture. When you hear people moved because they didn't like working in that culture, and today you're hearing it more often, if you watch any ad on TV, they're going to use the word values. I don't care if it's Kansas City Chiefs are talking about values or it's any brand brand or my Packers. My dad was a huge Packer. Um, Packer fans, you can hear it in sports, you can hear it and run in any retailer that it's all about values and about the behaviors. And and we frequent brands, at least I do, and I always hear this from other people, they frequent brands where they're treated well and where their product is a product that, you know, is worth supporting. So when you define your brand and define the behaviors, you end up creating that culture and then you hire to those behaviors, you will end up with the right culture. And then you have to maintain it. Maintaining it is holding people accountable, which bothers me because we've lost some accountability here. But accountability is huge. Not only how did you get the results, but I mean, the results, but how did you get the results matters. Do companies think about that? They're probably thinking about it more and more today than they were a decade or two decades ago. Yes. You know, but you're working a lot in healthcare and you're working a lot across, you know, various industries. We um, work in laboratories or we work in healthcare probably a third of the time, but we also work in anything from retail to we work with some of the great game of business manufacturing organizations. We so we work across industries. In each of the industries, one of the things that we found, regardless of the industry, consistency in showing improvement in your performance when you do define those values and behaviors and you work work on creating a culture that's a high-performance model. And it does start with who do you want to be when you grow up, right? So what are the values? What are the behaviors? And how are we going to get there with the right people? When you ask yourself that question, almost every company we go into either has had issues and they finally have found that they need to have a better set of values and behaviors so that they get the consistency they want. Mm -hmm. It really gives you a consistency around the brand that then creates a promise to your internal and external customers, in my view. And that's what Southwest does and JetBlue. Um, People are the best. Your people are your best recruiters. And they will recruit to your brand if they are happy and if the values um, are consistent with their values. And that's Stanford research. Joel Peterson told me it's great because the students coming out of Stanford have finally said they're first, they aren't looking for salary first. They're looking for a cu- culture that's consistent with their values. And I love hearing that. But your, OC Tanner just did a 2024 work, workplace study. And it talks about the various age groups and what is consistent amongst them in terms of how they choose an employer. And it is that they want a place that has the values and the culture that 
they will be happy in. They're no longer just looking for a job. Yep. And that's, it's interesting. But the other thing about the culture too, is your people will, they'll be your best recruiters, but they'll be your best gatekeepers as well. They're friends that don't pay. Look, you know, should I go apply for a job X, Y, Z? No. Or, you know, Hey, Ann, would this person do, you know, this, this friend of yours used your name, would they do well here? And you're like, "Mm, don't tell them I said so, but you know, no. And, Uh, and it's consistent. And I love that about the Gen Z, Gen X, the millennials, my nephew, um, he runs a large restaurant in um, Colorado. And he was telling me that the people that get referred there by their, their staff, and he has a huge staff, he has 50 bartenders. I mean, oh, he has a huge staff. And he kept saying, he said, you know, these millennials drive me crazy. But when one is referred by one of my millennials, they're good because they want to work. Um, they recruit people they want to work with. It's- and I think that is true today. We, I have a niece who is the head of HR for a significant laboratory here. And she said her best applicants that are coming in with the right credentials and the right experience, but most importantly, the right attitude. She said, are recruited by their A players. And A players have both your competencies and they have the values. So you want A players. Absolutely. What do you think about all the, you know, a lot of the, uh, a lot of people are using Hogan assessments, you know, the the performance, your predictive index. Do you like them? They're all good tools. And various organizations have used, I just hung up with one who used predictive index and said it really improved their hiring. I tell people, use whatever you have found assist you in hiring the right people because it's the most important thing you do in an organization. So in each organization, there are tools. Many have tried three or four tools and they find out one works better for them. I say, use it. I'm, I'm not someone selling tools. I do know that the right hiring model coupled with a tool will probably give you better outcomes, but you better have the right hiring model too. And that is one that's that's predictive in terms of success in your organization, which is customized to your values and, and behaviors. Yeah. And it's hard to recruit to those models. I mean, ultimately, right. once again, you're, 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 you're kissing a lot of frogs before you find the, the, the right prince or princess, you know, when you do that. But I, I'm assuming, you know, once you've built your culture or once a culture has been defined, how hard is it to change it? I have seen mergers, and I was part of one in a hotel company, where our cultures were very diverse, and we came together and tried to change it towards our culture, the group that was purchasing the other organization. It was very difficult um, because the other side had almost the same number of employees we had, and they had for years, many years, built that culture. At the end of the day, even though we tried very, very hard, Um, the leaders never came together and the leaders never decided collectively what kind of organization they wanted um, ultimately. And we ended up selling the organization. I have worked with other companies where when we came together, the whole issue was let's get this culture and let's make it one. Let's not make it two diverse cultures. Let's bring it together. And we were successful because we really worked at it. But you have to understand the value of culture in a merger rather than just looking at the financial side. If you Mm -hmm. look at those that have been successful, what has happened is they really made a habit. They really worked at it. It's not something that just happens when you merge. They don't just, the cultures don't just become one. You have to really work at it. 
And and that's the big thing. I talk to a lot of entrepreneurs who sell their companies. My advice to them is stick around for as long as you need to and then leave because you're probably just not going to like the new culture. I sit on a um, firm. In, it's a PE firm in New York, and we have a billion-dollar fund, and we buy a lot of the family businesses. We invest in them, let's say. And it is true. Typically, one to two years is max for those people that are founders because it changes. You know, the founder doesn't want to necessarily see all the changes. They knew it was the right time to, you know, hand it over. There are others. I mean, I have seen some who hang around for some time and and encourage the change and are part of it. But you have to be willing to do that. And that's not always easy when you were the founder. In fact, it's pretty difficult. It's hard. And and I've seen Silicon Valley, you know, you talk, see, well, you look at Silicon Valley companies buying other small companies just for the people. But the one thing they forget to think about is, hey, wait a minute, are all these people that we're buying going to stick around? Yes. And, and that's a big, better. and that's a big if. I always tell people you have to re-recruit your team. I really think going forward the next few years, it's going to be about retention. You know, we've hired the people. If you look, you see companies laying off because they're overstaffed. Let's just say going forward, they don't need as many people. I would tell you retaining those A players is still an issue. And it's really important to have a, a retention program as important as having a recruiting program right now. Is those talented people to replace them? It's very difficult. And in times of turmoil where you're letting people go, some of that trust is lost. Unless you re, I think it's re-recruiting, that's my term, and re-engaging people on a continuing basis. And you better have a plan for it. And you better put it in your calendar if you're a leader. Oh, yeah. To spend time. Especially when unemployment is, what, 3.5%? And you think yes. about unemployment amongst A players is probably closer to like zero. That's what Wall Street Journal had an article on that and, one. And you think about, hey, look, if if you think this person's good, your competitor thinks they're good too. So what are you going to do to keep them versus allowing your competitor to lure them away? And that's a it's a big dilemma. I mean, look, it's a Huge. it's a balance sheet. It's a profit and loss. It's a balance sheet. And there's a lot of dynamics to go into it, but it's always it's always less expensive to keep your A players than to go try and hire new ones. Much less expensive. And the turmoil, the fact that people will follow them, you can lose more than one on some occasions. And really and truly re-recruiting that A player and letting them know that you do care, that you're willing to talk to them about whatever the issue is, because today people have some different issues. They want to be home on Friday. One CEO called me and said, if my board won't let me have Friday off after COVID, I promised my son I would take him to school one day a week and pick him up. And he actually ended up leaving that organization, going to another organization. Over that issue. Over that one. And issue. that just and that tells you where yeah, you know, like if that doesn't if that's not a great, just a great poster for where we are in the world today yeah. with people and hiring and what's important, I don't know what is. You have to customize your rewards. I've said that forever. I spent send special when I'm sending my team who's been with me for twenty five years, when I send them gifts that I've handpicked, they're always different for each person. I know it sounds simple, but it's customizing the rewards. It's not about money. It's probably not about gifts. It is about if Susan needs a week off because her child is off for spring break and you promised her you would take her somewhere, for God's sake, give, 
giver of the week or him or anyone, whatever they need, just customize your attention to them and your rewards to them need to be different. Each person It's hard, but just talk about the next level, right? You don't have to talk about the 5,000 people you have in the company. You have to talk about your direct reports. Just start knowing who they are and understanding what matters to them and what turns them on and we'll keep them. It really is just about the people. You know, it's 101. It's not rocket science. I've always thought leadership was a 101 model, not a grad school course I had. It's intuitive. When you start doing it and you see the results, it becomes intuitive to great leaders. I love the conversation today. Thank you for coming on. Thank you. I love it. Would you come back? Sure. Anytime. I I could talk about this all day long. (laughs) It's so much fun. Honestly, people are fun and talking about it um, and talking about the obvious things that we all should be paying attention to as leaders really is important. And you've got, you've got, a, you know, the style that you brought to a lot of different companies. I mean, it's, it's fun. It's, it's your personality too. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's fun. It's, it's, you know, we're going to be leaders here. It's not rocket science. It's a very simple model. You know, let's not overthink it. Right. Thank so, you. Thanks, Dan, for coming on. Appreciate everything. Thank you. Have a great week. I hope you enjoyed the latest edition of the Aerospace Executive Podcast. You can reach out to me directly, Craig at NorthStarESG.com, or check us out at www.NorthStarESG.com. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, or on YouTube. Just do a search for Aerospace Executive Podcast. Thanks again. I'm Craig Pippen.